0: It is a pleasure to be here, and I have to commend you, uh, first of all, for this great missions conference, but also for the missionaries that you support. Uh, It seems a bit sad that an old white man would have to follow two vibrant uh, lady missionaries that you guys are so intimately involved with, but it's great, isn't it, to hear what God is doing and to realize that from here you get to touch and be involved with that. And while I'm uh, commending you and thanking you, I want to point out that one of your Members from this church has been released to serve with African Inland Mission. Judy Troutman has served with us for a long time. And you might not have a clue the contribution she makes to AIM. Uh, she led our Kenya work for years, which is our largest field with the most missionaries. Uh, she has gotten involved with something called transformational development, which is us trying to learn after 100 years, how do you help people without hurting them? How do you truly see transformation as you're seeking to come alongside And then most recently, she works with something called Africa-based services, which they basically are asked to take care of pretty much everything. Our aviation service, our counseling ministry, guest housing, all these extra things, our on-field media, and she's right in the thick of that. And her wisdom, her character uh, have served us well. So we thank you for sharing Judy with us, believe me. Uh, And you know, it's interesting that I'm here in Philadelphia this weekend, which is... Uh, St. Patrick's weekend celebration. I've noted a little bit of green in the room and I don't see anybody pinching anybody so I guess it's safe here. (laughs) But actually my family immigrated from Ireland to Pennsylvania in 1720. So about 300 years ago they came to the Philadelphia area and they weren't uh, typical Irish Catholic. They were Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. And uh, so I'm not sure what well, I was all involved in that story, but after about 40 years, they moved to Western Pennsylvania where our family's been for 250 years. And I just bring that up because it's, it's interesting how God works through history and through our experiences and through our families. None of these things are accidental. And sometimes we don't have a clue about it, but it's interesting to reflect on that. So in my own family journey, my great-grandfather owned a farm, had seven children, and was a medical doctor. Uh, So in some ways, if you just look at family lineage, you think, wow, this family is going to be well-established. They have a bright future. But then my great-grandfather, in his late 30s, uh, making a home visit, fell off his horse and died and left seven children with his wife. And that was a game-changing experience for the trajectory of our family. There wasn't life insurance and social networks and things, so none of his seven children uh, went to college uh, none of the next generation went to college. It was the third generation. I was part of the generation. It was the first one that actually went to college in my family. And God used that in many ways. It's just interesting to see. So this morning, we're going to look into the life of Peter and see who was Peter? What kind of family background did he have? How was he made? How did he interact with the world, his relationships and uh, connections in the world? And what did he need to learn about how God saw his world? Uh, yesterday when we met with the men, we looked at Peter being dragged along to the house of Zacchaeus. Uh, and it was embarrassing in some ways because he was a rich tax collector and not popular with the rest of the Jews. And yet Peter learned that God had a heart for Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus was being called into the kingdom and it was a celebrated experience. You know, if we looked at other things, you think, what did Peter learn at the wo- when Jesus encountered the woman at the well? What did Jesus learn when um, that woman who was known as a sinner came to that intimate dinner and anointed Jesus' feet with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was incredibly embarrassing. But what did Peter learn about uh, women and those who are classified as sinners and he'd been raised to keep distance from? He was learning that God had a heart for these people. And he needed to see how he was going to learn to open his heart. Well, I couldn't uh, have had better preparation for what we're going to talk about than what we heard even about what's happening in boston as well as malawi about the power of proximity Uh, but you have to have the right attitude it doesn't do any good to go be close to somebody unless god has touched your heart with the love of christ for those people so let me pray and then we're going to look into acts 10 this morning and see what god would help us to understand father we are grateful for your mercies to us We're thankful that someone came and shared the gospel with us, a story of your love uh, and the power unleashed in the death and resurrection of Christ. And yet we also understand, Father, we've all had journeys. We've had uh, our groups of friends and our families leave impressions in our minds and heart that sometimes make it hard for us to see people the way you do. So I ask that your spirit would come and uh, touch our hearts and our minds today. We want to know um, the love that you have to flow through us to others. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have your Bibles, we're looking in Acts 10. And uh, this is a long narrative. We won't be able to read all the verses, even. It goes from chapters 10 into 11, even. Uh, the scenario is uh, Peter, of course, has preached at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, uh, people are coming to faith in the thousands. Uh, persecution starts, and a lot of people have to get out of Jerusalem, including Peter. And Peter is having a marvelous ministry among the Jews. So he's gone places. God's giving him the power to heal. He's in a town called Joppa, and God has given him the power to raise a woman from the dead there, Dorcas. So I have to say, if I came to Philadelphia from Pittsburgh, and while I was here this weekend, God put me in a position where because of the power of God and for the glory of God, I prayed for someone that was dead and they were raised, I'd probably want to stick around Philadelphia for a while. I'd want to, I'd want to see what God was going to do and how people might respond to that. And that's what Peter is doing. He's staying in Joppa. Somebody's put him up in a house, and they're taking good care of Peter because they're so impressed that he's a man of God. And that's when we move into this story, which is when God wanted to actually have a wake-up call for Peter. So verse 1 says... Um, He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. So, here we have this man, Cornelius. He's living in Caesarea, which is a Roman city. Uh, The Romans were ruling the whole of the Palestine area, including Jerusalem, but they preferred to have their own city with their own culture and their own temples and everything. And so they built this town, Caesarea, and that's where this centurion, meaning this uh, captain of a hundred Roman legion soldiers, was staying and so what we would know about Peter, if he was a typical Jew, which in so many ways it's demonstrated that he was, he was not happy about the Romans dominating Israel. It was a shame to them. It, it confused them about why God wasn't releasing them and allowing them to have someone like King David bring them back to the glory days for the glory of God and the glory of Israel. So they weren't real happy with the Romans. And then to have this guy who's the head of a, a Roman a legion, basically, and have that kind of authority and that kind of prestige over him as a Jew would have been a painful thing. This is not the kind of guy that Peter was likely to ask out for coffee. Okay, you just have to picture. He's not really there. And uh, and yet, what he doesn't know about Cornelius, he's thinking he's this angry, selfish, powerful man. But what Cornelius really is, is a God-fearing man who loves the poor, has a heart for God already, God showed up in Cornelius' life before Peter got there. It's so important for us to understand that's the way God works. <clears throat> he does it in our circles as well. So Cornelius, in faithful obedience to God, basically sends a couple of his trusted servants and one really trusted soldier to go because he's got to go to this Jewish town to a Jewish home to ask a favor. And he realizes, wow, when a, when a centurion asks for a favor from a Jew, it's going to be tough. So that's the scenario that we have, what's going on with Cornelius. Let's find out what's going on with Peter. Pick it up in verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. So what we have in this scenario so far is Peter, again, he's on this roll of a ministry, and he's being uh, kept very hospitably, as I have this weekend and many other missionaries, being taken care of, meals provided for. And then he's having this prayer, and he has, in essence, falls asleep and has a nightmare. I mean, this is a nightmare for Peter. This good Jewish boy had been raised to know we never eat these kind of things. It's part of how we separate ourselves from the pagan world. It's part of how we show our allegiance to God. It's part of the honor of being a Jew that we don't eat these things. And that was deeply ingrained in Peter from his family and for generations. And his culture supported that. And he has this vision with all these animals and then God himself saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And this was a shocking thing for Peter because he had his whole Jewish tradition and all the way he felt about these things. And so here's what he expresses. Uh, where uh, Cornelius had said, what is it, Lord? Peter answers, surely not, Lord. I mean, isn't that a bit of a, uh, an oxymoron? He's calling him Lord, but he's saying, no way am I uh, getting on this plan. So he says, Surely not, Lord. Peter replied, I have never eaten anything unpure or unclean. God, you know I'm a good Jew. You know I've kept the rules my whole life. What are we doing here? It was just confusing. It was painful for him. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. So Peter goes through this process. Jesus is gracious to give him the vision three times to make sure, just as some people have testified about praying to be sure what God wanted us to do. Very common thing. Peter needed a little bit of extra help. God graciously gave him that same thing three times. God is gracious like that. He's not impatient with us. But he sometimes has to do these radical things, and that's what was happening in Peter's life. Um, And I guess, uh, you know, you wonder when he was sitting there and reflecting on these things, if he was thinking back to the other times he'd been surprised by God. Maybe at the woman at the well, and these other sinful people that came to Jesus and he welcomed. Maybe even when the disciples wanted to get the children to be kept away from Jesus. And Jesus said, no, let the children come. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. We all need God to reorient our hearts and our minds about what the kingdom of God looks like. And God's in that business. He's doing it graciously, but it's a piece of work, honestly. I think about some of the prejudice I grew up with and the way I saw the world from being in western Pennsylvania for multiple generations. And when I found myself in Africa, I had some things to learn. I had some, some layers that had to be peeled off, and I didn't even know they were there. And then God sent us to England for a while, and I thought, well, this is going to be easy because there's not much of a cultural gap between us and the English. Was I clueless? (laughs) When we went to the first church service, we could only understand about 70% of what was said. And uh, fortunately, we weren't in Scotland. It would have been 50% probably. But, you know, we just have these things to learn, and God wants to work in us as he works through us, and so he can work through us. And that's what he was doing in the life of Peter. Well, so Peter has these guys knocking on the door. What's he going to do? Uh, We pick it up. Um, While Peter was still thinking about the vision, verse 19, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. You see, God is still nudging Peter. The Spirit tells him what's happening downstairs in the house he's in and again says, I want you to obey, Peter. I'm looking for you not to hesitate here. He knew it was going to be hard for Peter. So Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? Now, actually, Peter knew why they came, because God had already told him three times what was going on. The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the Centurion. Now, these guys... servants who are gentiles and a Roman soldier they know they're talking to a Jewish man and they know there's this barrier there this Jew is not going to be happy to have us at his house and so they start this introduction you know we're from Cornelius this powerful Roman soldier he's a centurion but he is righteous and god-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people by the way Peter I want you to know that, that the people that know him, that have a relationship with him, the Jews respect him. And we need to get you to understand that, Peter. A holy holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So do you see the interaction across this big barrier, the cultural barrier, the prejudice barrier? And there's steps being taken. Cornelius is taking steps in obedience. His servants are taking steps, and Peter's being willing to learn. He invites them into his house, which was a big deal. Hospitality is something that God demonstrates through the life of Christ, through the ministry in the Old Testament. It's amazing how much God has shown us that when we break bread with people, powerful things happen. It's just wonderful. And uh, and in this case, it wouldn't have been comfortable for Peter to invite Gentiles into this Jewish home. But he was going far enough along to invite these guys in and to offer them hospitality. And I just want to say, there's so many ways to do missions around the world. There's needs, there's opportunities, there's needs here in Philadelphia. But hospitality is one of those golden keys God has given us to break down barriers, And to build bridges. And you see it here demonstrated in Peter's life. My wife and I moved into a a home in Atlanta, and uh, there was a, uh, our very next door neighbor was uh, about a 70 year old uh, woman from Guyana. And uh, she'd been in the States for about 35 years, most of that time in New York, and then she'd moved to Atlanta. And we thought, well, God's made us proximate to this woman, so how do we build a bridge? You know, she's a little older than we were. We understood from some things we heard she was Catholic or ex-Catholic, didn't have her, she didn't attend church at all. And so we invited her for a meal. And we thought, well, you know, she's uh, ex-Catholic or Catholic, we think, so we don't think it matters too much about her diet, so we cooked a pork roast. And uh, she came and then sat at our table and said, oh, I don't eat pork. So, this hospitality is not going so well. Um, so I chef, my wife's talking to her. We're out on the deck, and I shuffle in and cook a hamburger real quick, so she can have something to eat while we're eating. And it just was kind of awkward, to be honest. But uh, she was more uncomfortable than we were, and she hadn't been asked to many people's homes, even though she'd been in the state so long. Unless she had an ethnic connection with them, she had her family over every weekend. She had three uh, she had triplets that were in college. And she had them every weekend and cooked this big meal, sent them back to college with all this food. So I knew she knew how to entertain, but at our house it was a bit tricky. But sure enough, the next week we get an invitation. She wants us to come to her house. So my wife and I are happy about that. We go over there for dinner, and uh, she serves us a, a wonderful meal, but she's trying to cook American food. We thought, what a bummer. You know, she cooks for her grandkids every weekend, kind of, in food. We were thinking we are going to get some ethnic food, and she's trying to think, what would these Americans eat? And so, you know, it's kind of awkward. And she clearly had like four times as much food as was needed for the three of us. You know, But she was just trying to be gracious back and forth. And that began our relationship. And we would talk in the yard when we were doing lawn work. And we were, you know, we'd build some relationship. And then one day she came by the house. And she had a son that was uh, around 50 that had just had a brain aneurysm. And was in an emergency room uh, being operated on. And she was terrified. And she came to us and said, Would you pray with me for my son? Now, we hadn't um, uh, shared the gospel with her yet at this point. We're just building a friendship bridge. We had identified the fact that we worked at a mission agency. We were Christians. We talked about the church we attended. We'd let her know that God was a really big part of our life. But because she was next door, we thought we had time with us. But then she came to us. Will you pray with me? Right there in the yard, my wife comes and the three of us pray. She goes off on a jet to New York to see how her son's doing. And that took us to another level of discussions with her. Uh, eventually, we invited her to church. And uh, funny thing is, uh, she says she's going to come to church. We look. She doesn't come to church. We see her that week. Oh, we thought you might come. Oh, I did go. We found out she went to the church across the street from our church. <laughs> she went, made a wrong turn. So we talked about that and had a laugh. And the next week, she came to our church. And we had a home group Bible study at our house. So, Would, we'd love to have you come join a home group. And when she came, she didn't know how to like pray. She didn't know how to really read the word. Uh, But she journeyed with us, and it all started with hospitality. I just want you to know you just have to take those steps sometimes. Take the risk, be the one to go across the barrier, and that's what Peter did in this story. So what happens next? He has these guys there, uh, and in essence, uh, he's taken that first risk of letting them come in after they took the risk of coming to his place. And then we pick it up with the next verse. The next day, Peter started out with them And some of the brothers from Joppa went along. This is an important part of the story. Uh, The following day he arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter had entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. So uh, Peter shows up. Cornelius, the powerful Roman soldier, humbles himself before Peter. And Peter says, wait a minute, buddy. We are equal before God. Get up. You don't worship me. That's not how this works. I am supposed to introduce you to God, not have you think that I'm a big deal. And that's also an important part of our going to other people. So talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Peter's still asking the same question. But, you know, isn't it interesting? Peter has to sort of say, you guys know, I got a chip on my shoulder. You know I'm a Jew, and a Jew should not be coming to a centurion's house. You know that, right? But here I am. So he couldn't get by without saying that. And he's still feeling that awkwardness that is often a factor when we're engaging somebody new, someone who's different. And Peter is just kind of carrying that. So Cornelius answered and said, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour. At three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer. Uh, send a joppa for a Simon who's called Peter. He's a guest. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. That's, those are powerful words. There's a man that had a heart for God. He was hungry to know God. But somebody had to come with that message. God hasn't given this work to angels. The angels went and told Peter to go. The angels told Cornelius how he was supposed to make this happen. But somebody had to go. Peter needed to go. And here's a man that wants to know God, but he says, somehow God has given you the benefit of knowing things about him that I don't know. It was good of you to come. And we often think people are going to respond and say, it's a pain that you came to talk to me about God and about religion, and about spiritual things. But when God is at work and God is ahead of you, as he is in so many cases, you'll know because people respond, it was good of you to push into my life, to build a bridge with me, to be willing to take the risk, to share what you know about God and how I can be reconciled with God. It was good of you to come, Cornelius said. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Let's get on with it, Peter. For time's sake, I've got to consolidate. Peter basically preaches the gospel. He says, here's about the work of the life of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ when God proved that he was the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one. And as he's telling that story, and interestingly enough, one interesting part in this, he says, we are witnesses of everything he did, verse 39, in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, They killed him by hanging him on a tree. So here's this Jewish man with a chip on his shoulder about the Romans. He could have said, you Romans killed him. But he says, you know, he did all of this among the Jews, and the Jews killed him. Now, I don't want to do anything anti-Semitic. That's not at all the intention of what I'm sharing. But it was to show that Peter was not feeling a need to accuse and blame uh, the Romans at this point for this issue. No, he said, my people messed up, basically. They did not understand what God was doing in sending Christ. And so um, he preaches the whole gospel to them, and we're going to pick it up because he says, basically, anyone that believes in him is going to receive forgiveness of sins. Well, Peter doesn't get to finish. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have, so he ordered that they be baptized. A revival broke out at Cornelius' house, and Peter could see the hand of God in it. And the wonderful thing was when he said, Why can't we go ahead and baptize these people? He didn't say, hey, wait a minute, can we get some people to come up from Jerusalem and teach them all about the Jewish food laws, what they should and shouldn't eat? Can we teach them all the rules about the Sabbath that they need to keep? Especially, can we bring someone up here and teach them why they need to be circumcised so they can become like us? None of that was necessary. God had opened Peter's eyes to say, God loves these Romans. God had poured his spirit out on them. Jesus had died for them. And Peter said, that is so clear. Let's baptize them so they can have full identity in Christ just like us. And this would be debated for years, honestly, uh, whether or not people who are not Jews could just come into the faith by grace alone or whether they would have to, in essence, be circumcised and do other things. But Peter was on the forefront of that. said, It is so clear God loves these people. It is so clear that his heart is poured out for them and his spirit is in them Let's let them identify with us. I want to share another story. Um, And this one happened when I went on a visit in Chad a few years ago. And I have been in missions my whole life, uh, spent some time on pastoral staff some places. Uh, But I am so encouraged that we're doing so much to reach into the Islamic world. Uh, For 100 years, AIM, with SIM and other agencies, was building a whole quarter of... uh, Uh, converted people into the faith of Christianity in sub-Sahara Africa to stop the spread of Islam from North Africa. That was the thought in 1895 when our mission started. And so God incredibly birthed the church of uh, the southern part of Africa. And it's an amazing church, a glorious church today, active in missions themselves. But we were thinking we needed to have a defense against Islam. So only the last 20 years where God has opened our hearts to say, don't you understand that I love the Muslims too? Don't you understand that they deserve to hear this saving message just like all these other people in sub-Saharan Africa? And so we've pivoted to this. And one place we have people working is Chad. Chad's a really hot, really remote place in the center of the continent. And it uh, took about uh, 80 years for us to get from the east coast of Kenya to Chad. It took us 30 years to establish a base there. So that we could start sending missionaries to reach unreached people groups. There are 65 to 80 unreached people groups in different tribes living in northern Chad. And uh, so I was up there, and our, our leader there, a unit leader, um, John Probst is his name, he found out two hours from the capital there was a town called Masakori. Masakori was the heartland of the Kanambu people group, 750,000 Kanambu, four known believers. And so he started investigating whether we could do a work there. And it turns out in this town of 35,000, they built about an 8 to 10-acre culture center. Put fences up and built two buildings in it. And they wanted uh, it to be a place where people could, their young people especially, could learn English and have some other experiences that would help them access uh, opportunities in the future. But they built this place. They had no one to do anything in that place. So they said, if you'll bring some people here, we'll give you this culture center... And you can work here to teach our young people English and to do whatever else you want to do. So John came to my office in Atlanta and said, wait, we've got this golden opportunity. There's this Islamic people group. They are asking for us to come. They've given us this piece of property to use. And so we started praying and working. For two years, we tried to find a way to get a team there, and we couldn't get a team to go. Couldn't find someone who would lead. So John was really frustrated. And I said, well, John, maybe I need to come and bring a video team and we'll go up there and make a a video about this so we can tell the story to a broader audience and see if someone will come to this open door for the gospel. So I went with this camera crew, but the problem is Chad's very, it's got a lot of terrorist activity around there, uh, Boko Haram and other groups like that, and so you don't just go around filming anywhere you want to go. We had to get permission from the federal government, and in the permissions to film, they said, any place you go, you've got to get local permissions as well. So don't film, don't start getting your cameras out until you've gone to local officials. So I'm going up to this town of Masakori, and I don't speak you know, French, which is the government language. I don't speak Arabic, and I don't speak Kanambu. So we've got translators with us. And I think, I've got to go meet the chief, who's certainly going to be an Islamic man. And I have to ask him to be able to film his town so we can bring a team here. And I'm thinking, as you probably would be thinking, he can't be happy about us wanting to bring a team up here he knows that we're associated with the church that we're followers of christ and so i'm kind of thinking about what do i know about spiritual warfare and how tricky is this situation going to be and how much do i have to be sensitive to what's going on and it was about 104 degrees that day which is not unusual in chad and so he was sitting outside of his sort of official building they had a like a big veranda with a huge carpet and he and about i don't know 8 or 10 elders were sitting on this carpet And they walked us up there, and you take your shoes off, and you go and make all these polite greetings. Now, this guy was dressed in a black robe, a full-length black robe, wearing designer glasses and a really nice watch, speaking really good French. So he was educated and more sophisticated than I had anticipated as far as meeting the chief. And I'm still wary, and I'm thinking, okay, God, I've got to be really careful here. I don't want to mess this up for us. And we start talking, and he says, okay, why do you want to come? I said, well, you know, we have people in the States and in the UK and Canada and other places that are followers of Christ. But we feel if they could come here and be with your people and learn from them and you could help them learn Kanambu, but also they could teach your young people English. And some of them might have some sports that they could teach. Some of them might have some music skills like that great violinist we heard this morning. Uh, And they could come. We don't know who will be on the team, but they could come and help your young people. He thinks about that and he says, You know, that culture center is right beside the high school. If they come, they could teach in the high school too. I didn't expect that response. So, they're not, so that other guy, John Probst, who was with me, said, Well, we're not sure who we can get on the team, but what if we brought a medical person? Would you allow us to bring any medical people to your town? And he said, Oh, the government came and built a clinic for us, but there's no one to staff the clinic. Our women and our children die in inordinate numbers. If you could bring some medical people, that would be terrific. So we talked about some more ideas. The next thing you know, he's turned and talking to the elders in a language I'm not following. And the next thing you know, these elders get up and leave. And I'm thinking, you never know what's going to happen when you're in a place like this, you know. The next thing you know, they come back carrying a four foot by eight foot type sign with the name of the town, Massacori, on it. And here he's instructed them to go and get that sign and to hold it behind him because he wants to be on the video. He wants to ask people to come to his town to help his people. And like Peter (laughs) had this eye-opening experience, God loves a Roman soldier. I realized, who did I think I was going to? Why was I afraid of this Muslim man? Why did I assume that God hadn't got there before I did? God was making this man care for his people. He clearly wanted his people to benefit and prosper. And so he's inviting us to come. Open invitation. Uh, I will say, tragically, today, we've asked, I don't know how many, more than a dozen people to lead a team there. We could easily recruit the people to go, but we need an experienced leader. We still don't have that leader today. If I ask you to pray about anything, I'd ask you to pray for a leader to lead a team to Masakori. 750,000 people, wide open door to ministry. And we're looking for someone to go. But I want to close with sort of wondering what God wants for this church here in Philadelphia as well. Because there are some people, might not be Roman soldiers you're too afraid about, there might be some Muslims in the area that you would just as soon keep some distance from. Might be people of other ethnicities, other educational or financial backgrounds, really prosperous people or not at all prosperous people. I just want to invite you to the adventure. That story we heard about Boston, the power of proximity... That's a book written in 2018, by the way, that I highly recommend, The Power of Proximity. It's a family that moved into inner-city Dallas, and then they moved into inner-city Denver, Colorado, and worked with folks that were struggling. And it's basically that story of incarnational living, which is what we're looking for people to do in Chad, but that's what we need to do here, too. And the things that make us afraid, like our little dance with our Ghanaian neighbor, get over it, take the risk, take the initiative. Uh, reach out to somebody, invite them into your home, Uh, love on them with the love of Christ, and see what God does. See how God gets there ahead of you. It's a wonderful adventure, gang. I appreciate how involved you are in missions, but I I, I guess it's not an either or. It's not just in Africa, but it's also right here in Philly. So let let me pray for you, and then we'll continue this a bit tonight in our discussion. Father, I thank you so much for the grace of God being poured out around the world. And it's a surprising thing to me, Father, that you are so willing to use us with our prejudice and our weaknesses and our limitations. But I'm thankful you are. Thanks for inviting us into the uh, adventure of seeing your kingdom grow and your church be built. Father, we have a lot of things that might be from our families or our culture, from the news media, all these sources that will make us afraid and keep us in our homes. Would you give us, uh, instead of a spirit of fear, a confident awareness of your love for us and your love for others that motivates us to join you in the adventure of letting the love of Christ flow out of our lives into our neighborhoods for your glory and honor and for our joy, honestly. We just make that our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.